Let's take our Bibles and turn in them to the book of Isaiah chapter 37. Sorry if you're going <laughs> to hear me breathing a lot today. I'm wearing this lapel. We're trying to fix our little issues, our technical issues, uh, but uh, one step at a time. So Isaiah chapter 37, we're going to look at it in its entirety. And I, I know I've been, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But would you stand with me one more time? Uh, and let's take our hearts to the Lord as uh, we prepare our hearts. Father, you've said that the preparation of the heart belongs to man. And so we just still and we quiet our hearts even now. And we, Lord, we place the focus of our minds on you. Lord, we set our eyes upon you and we would ask that you would give us ears to hear you. And so now, God, we just uh, uh, wait upon you. And we would ask, Lord, that you would minister as only you can, that you would touch hearts, that you would change lives, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen? Amen. Have a seat. Guys, every now and then, God will step miraculously into the tide of human history. And among other reasons, it may be to deliver the righteous. It may be to judge the wicked. Many times it will serve both purposes simultaneously, but every time it serves a man to bring him glory. And chapter 37 of the book of Isaiah certainly brings into focus for us one of the most incredible, one of the most dramatic victories that was ever experienced by the people of God. And we left off last time, we were in chapter 36, exposing the devices of the enemy as we considered the way that the Assyrian king, via his field commander, sought to demoralize and discourage King Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. And essentially what he did was systematically lay hold of, latch on to everything that the people of Jerusalem might hope in or hold on to and dismantle it in front of them and demonstrate to them why it was worthless to hope in it or to hold on to it. It wouldn't work, you see. It was propaganda at its best. And when he had finished his rant of communication and intimidation and demoralization, none of the delegates or the people on the wall answered him even a word. They all held their tongue. They just held their peace and they went back inside. But make no mistake, this was weighing heavily, understandably, upon them. They felt hard-pressed, perplexed persecuted. They tore their clothes. They came to the king and they reported the words of the field commander. Let's turn our attention beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 37. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, that he covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day, or this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, remember the field commander, that was his title, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Well, as our time came to a close last week, I presented the question, what do we do when the enemy comes against us? 
And how are we to handle it when we feel overwhelmed on every side? And I told you, remember, you'd have to stay tuned for the next uh, week, the same bat time, same bat channel. You've tuned in again. And I think that Hezekiah becomes a wonderful example in this chapter for us when we find ourselves in just such a situation. And one thing, at least to me, that becomes instantly apparent is the difference in the disposition or the character of the two kings in this act, if you will. Sennacherib, as presented or as represented by his field commander, acts in arrogance and pride. But what does Hezekiah do? He instantly responds in lowliness and in humility. Now, I'm going to tell you, you're already moving in the right direction when rather than respond to the enemy, you turn to the Lord and you clothe yourself in humility and utter dependency upon him. The Bible is clear that God resists the proud or he sets himself against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And guys, it's kind of a no-brainer type of a question, but Would you rather have God positioning himself against you or extending the arm of grace to you? And so Hezekiah immediately, he tears, he rends his clothes, he covers himself with sackcloth. And this is a sign of mourning. It's a sign of repentance. And the idea here is, God, I humble myself before you. Whatever sin may be in my life, I turn from it. I repent, oh God, of the way that I've sought to handle this outside of you. And I acknowledge my total dependency upon you. You see, he knows the desperation of his situation and he allows it to move him to drive him in the right direction. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a big key. We need to see the desperation of our situation. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in a difficulty, we don't handle it properly because we won't allow ourselves to see and to sense its true gravity. And if you don't assess your situation accurately, you're probably going to handle it poorly. Hezekiah was wide awake to this, and he knows that they're where they are because of him. He's the one who didn't seek the Lord initially. He's the one who wouldn't listen to Isaiah's prophecy, who sought to align himself with the nation of Egypt militarily, and this is where it's gotten him. He's lost 46 cities. He's uh, lost over 200,000 people that have been deported as slaves. But guys, listen, I want to encourage you with something, and that is this. Even when we have messed up royally, we have erred exceedingly, and things have collapsed on every side, and it's our fault entirely. If we will find it in our heart to humble ourselves and repent, listen to me, God will always find it in his heart to graciously forgive and restore. Restoration and repentance, they they go together. There they are. Perhaps you remember it's Peter and John. They're in Acts chapter 3 and And they're preaching the gospel to the people, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that they, that is the people, had delivered him up, had denied him and demanded that Pilate crucify him even though Pilate was determined to let him go. 
Uh, but Peter told him, look, but I know that you did this in ignorance. Kind of like when Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, how that the rulers of Israel didn't really know, didn't truly know who Jesus was. Otherwise, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. But as Peter was kind of wrapping up his, his preaching, he exhorted them, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, forgiveness, and that times of refreshing, a restoration may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance and refreshment or restoration, they go hand in hand. When we repent, God restores. Amen? I want you to notice what else Hezekiah does. He goes, the Bible says here, he went into the house of the Lord. Come on, somebody. <laughs> when things are looking bad, when things are coming down, a great place to go is to the house of the Lord. The irony of it all is that usually when things are going bad, our tendency is to stay away, uh, to make excuses to think, well, we'll just catch the study online. By the way, I should tell you that church online really isn't church at all. Now, we're grateful for it. We're glad to use it as a tool to reach out, to encourage. But it is not the collective gathering of the corporate body to which we've been called. Hezekiah knew exactly where he needed to be, the house of the Lord. He did not allow his mourning, his grief, his difficulty to spin him in a direction of the rejection of God's power and help, but rather he leaned into it. Guys, we need to lean into our needs sometimes and lean into that need for God. And he determined to seek the Lord in his desperate situation. And guys... There are so many benefits, aren't there, to being here and to coming into the house of the Lord and seeking uh, the Lord in the community of like-minded believers. I mean, we're able to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love. There's a spiritual cross kind of pollination of sorts that takes place that aids us in bearing fruit for God's glory. And I'm just going to say there is a dynamic that takes place spiritually that when we gather collectively in unity that we just don't get when we're alone. But it's here also that we're reminded of the eternal perspective. You know, we're prone to measure things typically by how they affect us in the immediate situation you see in other words how is this going to impact me today how will this impact me next week but when i'm reminded of the eternal perspective things that seem so troubling today really bear no consequence when i consider them in the light of eternity I'm often reminded of Asaph. You guys hear me speak of him occasionally. It's in Psalm 73. You can write it down so you can read it later. But he was in that place. He was trying to figure out why the wicked seem to have it so easy. And he, this man of God, trying to honor God, seemed to have it so bad. You know, his health was bad. His body hurt. And there they were, the, the wicked, out partying and not seeming to have any problems. And he said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the math. It's not adding up. I'm, I'm trying to dot the I's and cross the T's. It just doesn't make sense to me. He says, notice, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And here's the words, then I understood. Then I understood, you see. 
When I went to church, he says, I regained the eternal perspective. But this is one reason, guys, that it can be difficult, if not impossible, for us to understand at times the way that God moves in our lives, some of the things he allows into the equation of our lives. Because we're always thinking in in terms of the temporal, but he's always working in us with a heart toward the eternal. And to realign us, to get us to that place where we need to be, sometimes there may be that he allows us to find ourselves in a pretty big pinch. Hezekiah, would you agree, finds himself in a pretty big pinch. And so we take note how he handles it. He humbles himself before the Lord. He acknowledges his utter dependency upon the Lord. He goes into the house of the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. Now notice what else he does. He sends his delegates along with the elders of the priest to the prophet of the Lord. He's seeking the word of God and intercessory prayer. By the way, another great thing to do when you're in a desperate place. Guys, I recommend it week after week at the end of each service. Seek the power of intercessory prayer. Prayer. Guys, when it comes to growing and building up our faith, how many of you realize that the Word of God and prayer go together? Family, look at what Hezekiah has done in only the first five verses of the 37th chapter. He's given himself over to humility, repentance, prayer, and the Word of God. I would say that is a pretty good example for us to follow, would you? When they say to Isaiah, the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. It's kind of a proverbial expression for disaster. They're saying that they're at the end of their rope. There's no hope left. They have no strength to do anything on their own. The situation is dire. It is desperate. And this is where, again, take note, put it in the margin of your Bible, write it down, look it up later. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. God, Listen to me. Write this down. God's strength begins where our strength ends. God's strength begins where our strength ends. And in verse 6, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now, allow me just to make a simple observation here. We'll move on. I want you to notice that Isaiah was completely aware of the fact that he spoke as a prophet for God. And that what he was sharing with Hezekiah was the infallible, inerrant word of God. He was completely cognizant of this. When he said, listen to me, when he said, thus says the Lord. Did you see where he said that? He says, thus says the Lord. When he said that, everything hinged on what came out of his mouth next. The fate of the nation plus, personally for him and his ministry, his entire credibility 
as a prophet was writing on every word he said, following the phrase, thus says the Lord. Guys, just bear in mind that this wasn't something that he was prophesying, you know, way into the future that they'd just kind of have to take his word for and trust that it would come, but they'd be long gone by then. No, it wasn't like that. This was happening in real time. And what Isaiah said would either happen or it would not happen. His prophecy would be entirely provable. Do you understand what I'm saying? His status as a true prophet or a false prophet would quickly come into focus for all of the nation. Now, I don't know if you remember this or you paid attention to it like I did. I'm sure some of you did. But there was a whole wave of prophets that came through back in 2020 saying that uh, President Trump was going to win the next presidential term. How many you guys remember that? I mean, they were everywhere. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not sure why anyone's still in their churches. Now, that may sound harsh. And maybe it is. But guys, the Bible is very clear regarding God and how he feels about people who say, thus says the Lord, when the Lord hasn't said. Now, it's an incredibly weighty thing to claim that you have a word directly from God. Now, had these men said, you know, I think that the Lord may be putting in my heart that this is going to happen, or, you know, I believe that the Lord is telling me, you know, something like that. I'd be much more gracious about it. I mean, it is important to be true to the way that you believe the Lord's leading you. If you believe the Lord is leading you in this way, then be true to it. But when you step out and say, God has said, friend, you better be right on the money or we have to discount and discredit you and be done with your credibility as it pertains to your ministry. Now, I'll be glad to teach you what the Word of God says, how it applies in our lives. I'll be glad to share with you what I believe uh, I discern concerning the times to which God has called us. But ladies and gentlemen, I am very careful not to use the words God said concerning anything that is not established in His written Word or when it comes to how it might direct people's lives uh, or the decisions that they make. You know, it's not uncommon for people to come to me and say, well, I'm thinking about this, but then there's that. What do you think? I mean, you know. Now, I'll tell people what I believe the Lord may be saying, but I could be wrong about that. You know, His ways are above my ways. They're beyond my finding out. I don't always know. You know, the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You know, simply acknowledge Him, your dependency upon Him in everything you do, and then He will direct you. You see, it's not a bad thing to simply trust the Lord and lead your life with the acknowledgement that He owns the editing rights to my life, and uh, I'm just clay in the master potter's hands. The Lord, through Isaiah, says to these guys... Look, I've heard, and when he says, uh, what does he say? He says here, um, I, I, do you not, don't be afraid of the words which you have heard uh, with which the servants, that word servants, it's almost, it's a kind of a dog 
It's, uh, it's like they're his errand boys. It's kind of a belittling term here. Uh, he says, uh, I've heard how these servant boys have blasphemed me. Guys, you got nothing to worry about. Okay? Now look at verse 8. And then the Rob Shaka returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna for he had heard that uh, he had departed from Lachish. Remember, that's where his stronghold had been established. And the king heard that, uh, how do you say, Taraka, king of Ethiopia, this was the king of Egypt, he was an Ethiopian king, has come uh, out to make war with you. And so when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and, uh, how do you say, uh, uh, Rezif and the people of Eden who were in Telazar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Sepharvaim and Hena and, and, and Ivah? <laughs> so this field commander returns and he finds Sennacherib who is the king of Assyria. Remember he sent him out, he dispatched him from Lachish and he went and he's setting up this campaign to seek Hezekiah's unconditional surrender. And uh, so when they have their meeting, he hears there's something going on. He goes back and he finds him in Libna. He's warring against that city, which is actually about five miles closer to Jerusalem. Uh, It would seem he's trying to hurry up and convince Hezekiah to capitulate to his demands because he's heard that Egypt is being is being uh, beginning to rally, okay? But now Isaiah had already told Hezekiah that Egypt's help wouldn't amount to anything. You remember that? We've gone over that. We won't revisit that. Historically, factually, the Assyrians defeated them, okay, when they came up against them, just like God said they would. But Sennacherib, again, through this field commander, he doubles down on his threat. He sends him a letter, hey, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Think about that. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you. The enemy is always trying to defeat you through fear, intimidation, discouragement, despair, and blasphemy. Nothing that anyone else, and he goes down the list of all, not all, but a number of probably major cities that they've dismantled and destroyed and taken into captivity and dispersed and all of that. And he says, nothing that anyone else has trusted in has delivered them yet. They all trusted in their gods. Look where that got them. Now you think you're going to be any different? Mm. (laughs) Look at verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. Where do you go when you've got trouble? Where do you go when you've got a difficult day, when you're in a desperate way? Where do you go? He went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. 
You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. Underline it, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Wow. Guys, there is all kinds of theology packed into Hezekiah's prayer. But I don't know that his prayer was intentionally theological so much as it was worshipful and relational. Do you hear what I'm saying? This guy knows God. And he knows all about God. And he acknowledges who God is, what God can do, his utter dependency upon him, and essentially his inability to survive apart from him. This is so good. He's literally laying everything out before the Lord. He takes this letter up to the house of God and he lays it out, this threatening letter. You know, you got the shutoff notice, right? I mean, he takes it and he, he spreads it out, which is to say, God, look at what this man has said. His utter blasphemy, his his total, uh, how do you say, denial of your ability of who you are truly. Look at this God. He says, look at what he has said and listen to what he has said. The pride, the arrogance with which he has exalted himself, oh God. Now would you save us, God, for your glory? Oh, the application may seem obvious, but guys, I'm going to state it anyway. Tell God everything. Withhold nothing. When you're confronted with a problem, again, maybe the bills are mounting up. Maybe the job no longer exists. Maybe the marriage is falling apart. Perhaps the child has gone astray. You're in a bad way. Guys, you just have to lay it all out before the Lord. Pray. Pour out your heart. Leave it all with Him. The psalmist said it this way. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Peter put it like this. He said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him. For He cares for you. God cares about you. He is in love with you. He has thoughts of peace toward you. You can trust him with your most vulnerable needs, you see. And his prayer places things in their proper perspective. I think many times we need to be reminded or or we need to remind ourselves whom it is exactly that we are praying to. Hezekiah begins, he says, O Lord of hosts. Now, uh, this is a military term. It's, a, it's, it's kind of like saying uh, the military, O military commander of all the hosts or armies of heaven, you see. Now, God has an army, if you will, heavenly hosts. 
And he is their commander-in-chief. Now, Hezekiah finds himself in military conflict. He finds himself in a military crisis. And so it makes sense for him to address the Lord in a manner that's most needful for him. You know, God could easily erase their problem. Now, for you, again, maybe you're in a financial crisis. It may be, God, you are the one that owns the cattle of a thousand hillsides. God, you are the one who's placed the ore in the earth. God, you are the one who has paved your very streets with gold. Or, or if you're ailing, you're afflicted. God, you are the great physician. You are our healer. You are the one who formed our innermost parts as when we were yet unseen, O oh God. You get the idea. He addresses God according to his greatest need. It has this way of helping us see the problem for what it is, which is not a problem for God at all, you see. Hudson Taylor said this. He said, Many Christians estimate difficulty in the light of their own resources, and thus they attempt very little, and they always fail. All giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on His power and His presence to be with them. I'm reminded of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Do you remember that scenario, that story? There they were, just two guys, and there was an entire Philistine regiment up there. And Jonathan was like, hey, let's go up and see. Perhaps the Lord will deliver them into our hands this day. You know, who knows? Let's see. Perhaps the Lord wants to do a great work. They weren't leaning on their own ability. They were trusting in the Lord, you see. And he says, God of Israel. This identifies his connection with his chosen people. In other words, he's not the God of the Assyrians. He's the God of Israel. The idea being, oh God, please don't forsake your people. He says, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Guys, I want you to look at the power and the sovereignty that he accurately ascribes to God exclusively. You are God. Think about that statement. It is a simple title, but perhaps the most powerful. If you are God... There's nothing you can't do. For with God, what does the Bible say? And nothing will be impossible. All things are possible. Nothing will be impossible. Sennacherib isn't God. You and me, we aren't God. He alone is God. God alone exercises universal dominion and absolute sovereignty. He says, you have made heaven and earth. It's perhaps, ladies and gentlemen, the most powerful verse in all of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Guys, it's how the book begins. And if you can get past the very first verse of the very first chapter, then anything else it says bears no problems at all. This world, this universe belongs to God who is all powerful. He created it and he maintains the rights over all of it. You know, we get the feeling that uh, Hezekiah's faith is rising as he prays. He says, look at these words. Listen to what Sennacherib has said and how he's reproached the living God. God, he thinks that he's driven all these kingdoms to the ground. He's cast all their gods in the fire and that he's going to do the same thing with you. But those nations weren't serving gods at all. Their gods were the work of men's hands. Therefore, they couldn't save them from the Assyrians. But all creation, oh God, is the work of your hands. Therefore, 
Save us, he cries out. Not because we're so great or we're so deserving, but because you're so great and for your glory that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Lord, you alone. I love it. Love, love, love this prayer. And I want you to notice it's not long. Ladies and gentlemen, the strength of prayer is not in the length of prayer. In fact, the Bible says, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. In other words, it's important that we kind of know our place. Therefore, let your words be few. The Bible says that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. It would seem that God would prefer that we just pray to the point rather than seeking to belabor and have all these flowery things and be real lengthy. Just from our heart to His heart. That's it. I mean, God already knows the heart of the matter, doesn't He? So why do we kind of work around it and seek to elaborate on it and all these things? It's just kind of we do that. God's like, I know why you're here. Come on, spit it out. Verse, uh, what, 21. And then Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, sent to Hezekiah, here it is again, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, King of Assyria. Okay, I want to stop right there. I'm going to read it again. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Now, everything that follows in God's response comes as a result. It's important that you see this. Comes as the result of these words right here. Because you have prayed to me. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, make note of it, memorize it. Because you have prayed to me. Question. What if Hezekiah hadn't found it in his heart to pray? It makes us wonder how many works... How many blessings, how many victories, how many souls saved to the glory of Jesus Christ lie unclaimed in heaven until the Lord can say, because you have prayed to me. I want you to see how powerful, how important prayer is. One more quick observation. How was it that God answered Hezekiah. It was through Isaiah. Guys, there are times that you might pray or be seeking the Lord, and He may speak just directly to your heart, you know. Other times, He may speak through a friend. He might speak through His written word. It's up to you and me to have ears to hear, okay? So, Hezekiah spoke to God. God spoke to Isaiah, and Isaiah sends word to 
Hezekiah. Let's read the response. Guys, we're going to read a little bit. Um, this is a longer section because I want to read the entire response. So we're going to read all the way through verse 35, okay? So buckle in. This is the word of the Lord, or this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him, that is Sennacherib. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the heights of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water with the soles of my feet. I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it and now I have brought to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into these heaps of ruins. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded and they were as the grass of the field and the green herb and the grass on the housetops. They had these dirt uh, roofs and the grass would grow on them but it would no root. It couldn't live. It would die real fast. And the grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose, my bridle in your lips. I will turn you back by the way which you came. And this shall be a sign to you. This is for Hezekiah. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. Probably uh, the time of year that he was there, the, it was time for planting was gone. So when he's gone... It'll grow, eat what grows of itself. The second year, still working through the ruins, getting things back in order, the same. The third year, you shall sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat of the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again, underline it, take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from the uh, Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And therefore, thus says the Lord concerning King Hezekiah, or pardon me, concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build up siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Praise God. Just FYI, David died some 300 years prior to this. Question. How important is your relationship with God even as it pertains to your lineage? I want you to think on that. 
The Bible says the righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Guys, it is not uncommon for God to bless someone on behalf of another who has loved him and served him with integrity. I'm just telling you one of the best things that you, mom, dad, I'm telling you. One of the best things you can do for your children is to love and honor the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 300 years later, God's still doing things for the sake of his servant, David. Hezekiah was of his lineage is why I say that. Now, back in verse 22, in speaking, he says, the virgin daughter of Zion. What he's saying is, um, Jerusalem has not been ravished by you yet, and she never will be. In fact, she will laugh you to scorn. Why? He says, uh, because you bit off more than you could chew when you started talking trash against the Holy One of Israel. That's essentially uh, what God says. He says, you don't know who you're dealing with. And God rebukes the king of Assyria and his pride seven times. I don't know if you picked it up. I tried to emphasize it, inflect it a little bit. Seven times in verses 24 and 25, the, the thoughts of the heart of Sennacherib uh, are exposed. And it's this, my, I, 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 my, I, I. It, it reminds us of Lucifer's words in chapter 14, well, you know, I will ascend, I will, I will, I will. It reminds us of Proverbs 16, that pride goes before destruction. And God says, you got it twisted, fella. I'm the one who formed it all. I'm the one who raised you up, who allowed you to be a means of judgment upon the nations and caused them to fall easily before you. And then we get some terrifying words in verse 28. He says, but I know your dwelling place. I know you're going out. I know you're coming in. I know your rage against me, Sennacherib. I know where you live, and I know everything about you. I know your every thought. I know every move that you make. By the way, the same is true of you and me. God knows all about you, and he searches your heart, and he tests your mind, you see. And he essentially tells him that his sin, we've talked about this before, how that in the hand of God there is a wine cup of wrath and then when it fills to the brim, he will press it to the lips of the person or the people who has filled it up. And here we see here that he essentially tells him that his sin against him has reached its limit and the time for judgment has found him. You know, the Assyrians historically, one of the ways that they would lead their victims into captivity is they would put a hook in their nose or in their lips and they would string them all together, you know, like a big catch of fish or something. And, uh, and they would lead them into captivity through a hook and a rope or whatever. And so uh, God says, you know, you're going to find out what that's like. Uh, and then he turns to Hezekiah and he tells him, it, it, there's some rough times in front of you, but I want you to see my fingerprints are in it. I want you to see that I'm all over it. For the next two years, you're going to have to just eat what comes out of the ground naturally. But by the third year, you will sow and you will reap. And by this, you'll know that it's of me. And you will take root downward. You will bear fruit upward for the glory of God. Ladies and gentlemen, that's where we want to be. We want to be taking root downward in the word of God and bearing fruit upward for the glory of God. 
And again, verses 33 and 34 are extremely detailed. I'm, I'm really, it, it blows my mind how detailed uh, this is. Because think about it. We know there was at least 185,000 soldiers. There was probably, you know, maybe, I don't know, I'll make this up. Let's say there's around 200,000 total. Because I'm presuming that it wasn't just uh, the field commander that survived, but I, I could be wrong. Well, we could just say 185,000. Doesn't matter for the point of application. Had one of the soldiers, even one of them, so much as fired a single arrow toward the city. Isaiah's entire ministry would be discredited. Or if they had gotten a shield and took a posture, or if they had started to build a siege, all these common things. But God said, it's not going to happen. Not because you don't deserve it, he says to Hezekiah. But for the glory of my name and for the sake of my servant David, I will save you. What's the take home? Well, we do well to realize that God has delivered us, not because we deserve it, but for the sake of his own glory and the sake of the son of David, the greater than David, Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Now, what do you make of that? One of the most dramatic deliverances in all of the Word of God summed up in a single sentence. Blows my mind how much God can pack in a single sentence. You know, we, it takes us a minute. But so many, this is so common with God's Word. Some of the greatest, you know, He is not here, for He is risen. That's all you get. You know what I'm saying? The greatest accomplishment of human history, you get it summed up in a single sentence. So too here, guys. Now you remember when the field commander said that one of the smallest of Sennacherib's captains could take out over 2,000 of Judah's horsemen? Well, it just took one angel to eliminate, to eradicate 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night. Now look at verse 37. We're going to make our way to our close here, Karen. You can come on forward here. Verse 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. Uh, you should also know that uh, between verse 37 and 38, 20 years pass. Okay. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that his sons, Adrimelech and, how do you say, Sharezer, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And then, how do you say, uh, Asar Hadan, his son, reigned in his place. Well, what do you know? Came to pass, just like God said it would. And guess what else? I don't know if you picked up on the irony here. Remember how he was threatening Hezekiah, how his God couldn't save him? Sennacherib was worshiping in the house of his God. His God couldn't save him. 
Why? Because he's, there's only one God. The true and the living God. One angel, 185,000 men. Here's what I want to draw to focus for you as our time comes to a close here. I want you to think about this. There was our Lord, your Lord and mine, at the, the night of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating as it were, great drops of blood. The soldiers come upon them. Peter grabs the sword that he had taken, that he had with him. He slices off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Jesus stops. He says, wait, what are you doing? Remember, he picks up the ear. He restores him. But he says, Peter, do you not understand? I could pray to my father right now. And he would provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. Now, one angel destroyed 185,000 men at night. What's going to happen when, when God releases 12 legions of angels upon humanity for the way that they have responded to and, 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 and denied and sought to destroy his son? And I would imagine there was some great restraint going on behind the scenes. The angels probably wanted to be turned loose. But no one took his life. He laid it down. Out of his great love for you and for me. And so, Lord, we thank you for your great love. I pray that you help us to emulate this example that we find in Hezekiah here. To cast our cares upon you. To humble ourselves before you. To trust in your word. By all outward appearances, there was no reason to, to think that they would be delivered. They only, they hung all their hopes on the truth of your word. I pray that we do the same. You are our deliverer, our savior. And we give you praise.